Few alliances in the world are as storied and robust as the U.S.-Korea alliance. Building on the security relationship established at the end of the Korean War, the partnership between the two countries have since expanded to trade, science and technology, human rights, and elsewhere. And in particular, we saw the public health cooperation between the two countries in the joint effort to contain and treat Ebola during the 2014 outbreak in West Africa. So what has the partnership looked like between the two countries in the ongoing effort to contain COVID-19? To discuss this collaboration, our guest today is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Korea and Japan, Mark Knapper, a member of the Senior Foreign Service of the U.S. Department of State. His previous postings have included Tokyo, Hanoi, and Baghdad. But most notably for the discussion today, he served as the Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul from 2017 to 2018 and Deputy Chief of Mission from 2015 to 2016. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan. Social distancing from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. Deputy Assistant Secretary Knapper, thank you for making time out of your very busy schedule today to join Korean Context. Thank you, Young. It's really a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the chance to interact with your listeners on this important topic today. Our listeners have been looking at the collaboration between South Korea and the United States in response to COVID-19. We've seen a bit of news coming out of Los Angeles that local leaders have purchased testing kits from South Korean firms. And we've also been hearing recent news that South Korea is helping the U.S. military conduct some COVID-19 tests for troops stationed in the Asia-Pacific. Could you tell us a little bit about what the conversation has been like between the two countries at a national level? It's an important conversation that's been taking place between President Trump and President Moon. It's taken place at various levels and between various agencies. And it's been a conversation that is based on the excellent health cooperation that our two countries have enjoyed over many, many years. And we can get to that a little bit later. But just in terms of the ongoing crisis, you know, we've seen, for example, as I mentioned, President Trump, President Moon spoke, and we were very grateful for President Moon's generosity and prioritizing the provision of test kits to the United States. So we're right now undergoing a process to get those here at a very important time, and I think it's thanks to the generosity of Korean companies and, of course, to the Korean government that we've been able to expedite this, and I think it reflects our very strong friendship and our very strong alliance. Uh, some other areas in which we've been talking, um, in the White House, we have the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And as you can guess from the name, this is an office that handles any and all issues related to uh, U.S. policy on science, technology, medicine, you name it. And so this office has, in the past couple of weeks, hosted as a conference call with counterparts from many countries throughout the region, including the Republic of Korea. And this has been an opportunity for the Korean government to share, not just with the United States government, but with other governments, uh, its best practices and its findings and and data about this virus and its spread. And in other areas that our two countries have been conversing, not directly COVID-19 related, but the U.S. and South Korea agreed to a currency swap, $10 billion, which is, again, a reflection of our two countries' great friendship and our understanding that in this difficult time, both of our countries could use use each other and then hopefully provide uh, financial and other assistance in the form of this currency swap. And I would just say finally, um, and it probably hasn't made the news, but so we've been working together to help each other's citizens out. And so as you mentioned, of course, South Korea has been allowing test kits for U.S. 
service members in the region to be flown to Korea and tested there, given Korea's proficiency with testing. And of course, so we very much appreciated that outreach, again, in the spirit of our alliance. But also, for our part, the United States, we've had what we call a repatriation flight from various parts of the world. When there's been a need, uh, the Korean government has asked us to help out with its citizens to get on some of these flights along with American citizens. And so we've done that a couple of occasions from Africa to Cuba, Rwanda, and Uganda. So, of course, as allies, this is natural. This is what we do for each other. But I think in a crisis like this, it really does show the quality and the strength of the U.S. ROK friendship, the U.S. ROK alliance. Thank you very much for that broad overview. I think when people usually think about the U.S.-South Korea alliance, it's the security aspect and the economic aspect. But it sounds to me like there's a lot of robust institutional foundations around public health that really came together in response to the COVID-19 crisis. Could you tell us a little bit about what public health collaboration existed before COVID-19 that might have helped the two countries respond to this crisis? with this proficiency? We do have a very rich recent history of cooperating in the health space. I was in Seoul working in the embassy in 2015 when we had the MERS outbreak there, and very quickly, the United States CDC linked up with the KCDC to help out and provide best practices and other information on what we knew about MERS from the outbreak in the Middle East. We worked very closely with WHO as well, so it's a contact between the WHO and the KCDC. And so I think that cooperation from the time of the mayor's outbreak helped fail to form, I think, one foundation of our cooperation. And another, if you go back to 2014, when the Ebola outbreak took place in Africa, the United States sought partners to fight this outbreak in West Africa, and the Korean government was the first government to raise its hand and say, how can we help? And the Korean government at that time sent military medical doctors to Sierra Leone to provide aid and assistance to the outbreak. That's another example of the U.S. and South Korea collaborating on fighting infectious diseases. And then I think another good example is what we've been able to do in terms of providing assistance in third countries. And this is through, through a mechanism called the Global Health Security Agenda, GHSA. And this is something the United States was the first host of the first GHSA summit. Korea put its hand up and volunteered to be the second host country in 2015. And this was an opportunity for the Korean government to offer assistance to a number of countries, around 18 or 19, to help them build their own health security apparatus within their own countries. And Korea was drawing on its own experience, most recently at the time with mirrors and with other infectious diseases. And it really just, again, showed the real quality of our two countries' alliance, where Korea can help and it has helped. And this has built a very strong foundation our two countries today could be fighting together COVID-19. You mentioned earlier that the collaboration between the South Korean government and the United States is quite recent. I imagine that is because of South Korea's also very recent history with its emergence as an economic powerhouse. What was the relationship like before? I understand South Korea was a fairly significant recipient of foreign assistance from the 1950s to the 1980s. What was the public health relationship between the two countries like prior to this robust collaboration that you just described? I'm not as much an expert on that history, but what I can say is, for example, we've enjoyed over over the decades very strong people-to-people relationship between our two countries, and we've enjoyed many Korean students, both undergrad and grad students, going to the United States. And I know of many, many 
health professionals in Korea who've studied at American medical schools, studied at American dental schools, studied at American public health graduate programs, and have brought their expertise and their knowledge back to Korea. And so I think that has been one way since the 50s that our two countries have collaborated and the United States has been in a small way been able to help Korea's public health sector, all these medical professionals who've gotten degrees and made advanced degrees in the U.S. and brought it back to DROK. I think another way is the collaboration between our two militaries over the decades. One of the benefits of our alliance has been very close cooperation in terms of combat medicine and trauma care. This is something I think that when you talk about the U.S.-Korea alliance, I think many people underestimate the benefit and the impact that our two countries' military medical professionals have been able to bring to each country. And it's a fairly recent example, but you'll recall in 2017, I think it was September, when we had a North Korean defector rush across the MDL, the military demarcation line up in Panmunjom, and suffered a number of gunshot wounds from North Korean soldiers. And... Because the U.S. and ROK soldiers up there at Panmunjom had trained so well and so often together, it was very natural for us to collaborate and get this soldier on the helicopter into trauma care, and then he eventually recovered. But I think if we hadn't had that kind of decades-long military-medical collaborative alliance partnership, we probably could not have achieved that. You're talking essentially about the process of learning between the two countries, whether it is personnel traveling to one another's countries or building on experiences from past cases. You mentioned earlier also that you were present in South Korea during the MERS outbreak in 2015. Could you tell us a little bit about perhaps areas where the two countries learned that has helped South Korea respond to the early infections of COVID-19. We've been hearing a lot about how the South Korean government has built on what it's learned in the 2015 MERS crisis. And it sounds like perhaps there are areas where the U.S. collaboration with South Korea has helped with that. Uh, Could you speak on this a little bit? So I mentioned in 2015 at the time, the collaboration between the U.S. CDC and the Korean CDC. And in fact, that was thanks in part a very happy coincidence. At the time of the MERS outbreak in 2015, we had a CDC official visiting South Korea on completely unrelated business. And it just so happened he was an expert on infectious diseases and knew a thing or two about MERS. And so he was able to immediately set up shop. He became an integral part of the team at the time that was working to fight MERS. I think thanks to that collaboration and thanks to Korea's own efforts back then and the lessons it learned, it had muscle memory to respond quickly to the current outbreak in terms of reaching out to to its own biotech companies to develop diagnostic kits, to make sure that its regulatory institutions approve these kits very quickly. And so Korea, by early February, of course, of this year, had approved COVID-19 testing kits to ensure a robust testing program, which helped Korea to flatten its curve. And I think another way that the 2015 MERS outbreak provided good lessons was in terms of contact tracing. Recall in 2015, one of the big issues was the ability to be able to, to track individuals who had gone to one hospital you know, they were suffering a fever, they didn't know what was wrong with them, so they go to one hospital, then they went to another hospital. And I think that really contributed in a bad way to the spread of MERS in 2015. And I think the lesson from that was to be able to aggressively chase down individuals who were infected, to aggressively 
track people who were in contact with, make sure that those folks within testing, quarantine, et cetera, could really nip in the bud a further spread of COVID-19 virus. And so I happened to be in Korea in February, just on separate business, just as this, this outbreak was taking place there, not yet here in the U.S. And I was struck at how wired everybody was in terms of knowing you know, what patient, you know, patient 31, where was that patient and what movie theater did they go to or what cafe did they have coffee at? This intense sort of transparency and sharing of information on this occasion, the COVID-19 outbreak really helped. And I think that was a direct lesson from the MERS outbreak in 2015, namely the need to be able to identify potential patients, to identify the contact tracing, other potential infectees, ensuring that there wasn't further spread by making sure folks quarantined in the right way. Absolutely. And the infection tracing that you mentioned has been cited by numerous health officials and experts as the key to South Korea ensuring a more effective containment of COVID-19. Now, from your experience with both MERS and perhaps with the ongoing crisis, um, it's very clear that the collaboration between the two governments and institutions in two countries have led to a lot of benefits in terms of public health. Are there any impediments to closer cooperation that you noticed in 2015, or perhaps even today, that are a challenge to an even closer cooperation for the benefit of human security? We benefit so much from the technology, being able to have this kind of conversation, for example, by telephone, or to be able to collaborate online using these various platforms that are now out there. We're doing various webinars and web meetings and conference calls and you name it. I mean, the technology is amazing, but I, I still think, you know, one impediment is the lack of personal contact, face-to-face contact between between folks, being able to meet and interact in person. So I have to guess that this collaboration will be impeded somewhat by not having personal contact that diplomacy, health cooperation, you name it, requires. Beyond that, I'm very confident that the relationships that are two countries that our experts have built over the years are only going to grow and to benefit us going forward. Just in the four and a half years since the MERS outbreak, the quality of contact and collaboration between CDC and KCDC, the quality of our contact between the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and its Korean counterparts, the quality of our contact between our embassy and Seoul, and the Korean government and the Korean embassy here and our government. I mean, these are all levels. We're in constant touch and still working closely. And I think one immediate benefit of this kind of contact we saw fairly early on, I guess it was in March, when Korea was in the midst of its very significant outbreak, starting in Daegu, and there was great concern about infected individuals coming to the United States. We worked very closely with the Korean government to work out a plan, and Korea very, I think, innovatively came up with a plan to screen passengers at Incheon Airport. So several levels of screening, starting with coming into the terminal and then going through security and then even before boarding the airplane, several levels of health screenings to try and minimize the number of potentially infected passengers coming to the U.S. And I think that was really key in ensuring that travel between our two countries remained possible. There was no shutdown in travel. I think it was thanks to our close and trusting communication that we were able to to have conversations at various levels about this matter. And our folks here had conversations with U.S. airlines. Of course, Korean authorities had conversations with Korean airlines, conversations with various authorities who were in charge of Incheon Airport. And so I think it's a, it's a real success story in terms of how our two countries 
thanks to our alliance and thanks to our good communication, Korea was able to put those measures in place in a way that we think helped to stem the spread of the disease. Listening to your explanations and descriptions of these collaborations, I'm also beginning to feel a deep sense of appreciation for the level of cooperation between the United States and South Korea, and also for how fortunate it is that we live in a country where there is a lot of robust technologies and existing infrastructure to leverage in combating this crisis. But of course, there are many countries in the world that don't have this close collaboration between their health officials and also with insufficient infrastructure to tackle a crisis as large as COVID-19. You mentioned earlier the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and the collaboration between the South Koreans and the United States in combating that infectious outbreak. Are there any areas in the world where South Korea and the United States are engaging in continued work to enhance the public health capacity of that country or the region? As I mentioned earlier, we have this international effort known as the Global Health Security Agenda. The United States was the first host of this international annual gathering, and yeah, I think in the spirit of, of our alliance, but also in the spirit of international collaboration and the spirit of wanting to contribute to this international humanitarian effort, Korea hosted the second one, the second GHSA gathering in 2015. And significantly, this collaboration under the GHSA framework has continued. You know, it's one thing to host a big international gathering, be under the spotlight or bask in the international tension that comes with these efforts, but it's another thing to continue with the the hard day-to-day work that's necessary to promote health security in other countries. South Korea and the United States continue to dedicate effort and time and energy and resources, both human resources and budget resources, through the DHSA effort, you know, five years on now. And one of the fruits of this effort has been collaborative activities in Cambodia, where COICA, Korea's international cooperation agency, together with the U.S. CDC, are working together to improve things like immunization, to develop the healthcare workforce there, and to strengthen the laboratories there in Cambodia. COICA and the CDC have also been, again, under the rubric of the GHSA, COICA and the CDC have been working together in Ghana, again there, to, to develop laboratory systems to help strengthen the healthcare workforce, so medical professionals like doctors and nurses and others, public health experts and also in Ghana to improve emergency preparedness. These are just two countries, two examples of of how the U.S. and South Korea are working together in third countries. And so not just when there's an emergency like Ebola in 2014, of course, our doctors rushed in there together, shoulder to shoulder, to take on that terrible disease, but also just on a day-to-day basis, the kind of day-to-day work that's necessary to improve the health situations in other countries is another area in which the U.S. and Korea are working very closely together. I think there is a perhaps a degree of underappreciation for that kind of day-to-day work. Health experts have cited that existing conditions, chronic diseases, and lack of health infrastructure exacerbates situations when crises like COVID-19 break out. So the kind of ground-laying work that you described is absolutely important. Of course, there is a country very close to South Korea that probably needs a lot of public health assistance, but poses a serious problem because of the geopolitical posture that it takes, a very threatening geopolitical posture that it takes. 
I imagine you can already guess what country that is, but what is the U.S. government and South Korean government's position on how they're going to approach North Korea amidst this global pandemic? Well, as our Secretary of State has said, we recognize that North Korea, as you said, would likely face a challenge in this area. And so we have publicly offered to provide assistance. And we've done this through the, the World Food Program, other international organizations. And as our spokesperson, the State Department has also said, you know, we're concerned about the vulnerability of the North Korean people to this outbreak. And so we support international aid and other health organizations to take steps to counter and contain and respond to the spread of COVID-19. We recognize that the potential humanitarian crisis there. I've publicly said that we're willing to assist and certainly facilitate assistance from international organizations. Over this course of this conversation, I learned quite a bit about the deep level of cooperation that South Korea and the United States is undertaking to improve public health more generally, both within the region and throughout the world, and also how much work has already gone in to ensure human security and public health between the two countries. Are there any areas where you hope for improvements in the future? Are there areas for future cooperation that you feel the two countries have not yet engaged in or could engage more closely in, either in public health or other areas of shared concern between the two countries? As you know from my background, I've spent a lot of time working on Korea issues. I've spent a lot of time working on Japan-related issues and certainly spent a lot of time working on U.S., ROK, Japan, trilateral issues. And I think definitely U.S. ROK Japan cooperation in the health sphere is an area ripe for growth. I know, for example, that, that our three countries, the researchers, are working on what we call the cancer moonshot, which is an effort to collaborate among our, our researchers and scientists to you know find a cure for cancer. But our three countries, U.S., South Korea, and Japan, are so well positioned given our high level of expertise and already existing personal and institutional relationships between and among our countries, I would love to see us deepen even further our public health cooperation and medical research cooperation. I think there's no, no three countries better positioned to do it. And certainly it's something that my team and I, the State Department, constantly work to encourage and improve. Well, Deputy Assistant Secretary Knapper, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners of the podcast to walk away with? I think it gets back to one of your early questions about how when people think about the U.S.-Korea alliance, the U.S.-Korea friendship, we think about security relationship, we think about the trade and investment relationship. But I would encourage folks to remember that our two countries' collaboration and cooperation are much more than that. I mean, those are huge areas of our relationship, but our relationship includes things like we talked about, public health, science and technology cooperation, space cooperation development assistance in many parts of the world beyond public health, things like infrastructure development. And so, you know, when people think of the relationship, I hope they do it in a, in a way that's, that's very broad-based. And I would just note as well that the only reason we're able to do this as much as we do together as countries is thanks to our people-to-people relationship. I think every aspect of our bilateral ties stands on the shoulders of the personal and people-to-people connections between our, our two nations. And this is thanks to Many, many young people that over the years have studied in the United States. This is thanks to the, the number of many young Americans who come to live and study and, and work in South Korea. This is thanks to our, our vibrant Korean-American community that every day is building bridges between our two countries. 
And unfortunately, given COVID-19 pandemic, I think you're going to see decline, maybe the number of foreign students and young people traveling back and forth, living and experiencing each other's cultures and countries. But I hope that we can get over that soon because so much of what we do together is thanks to the bridges that are built every day between between people going back and forth and living in each other and experiencing each other's countries. And so I hope if one of your listeners is out there thinking about studying in the U.S. or thinking about studying in Korea, I know now the perfect time to actualize that. So hope we'll get out of this and we will get to the point where we can uh, enjoy each other's cultures. And for those young people, young Americans who are listening, perfect way to be able to do that is in the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, the U.S. State Department, I would encourage young Americans listening to think about foreign service as a career. It's a great way to see the world and do really meaningful work and help, in my case, as a young person, I went to South Korea and been fortunate enough to have been able to play a small role in building our two countries' relationship. And if that's the kind of thing that interests you, I would encourage young folks to look at the foreign service as a, as a potential career. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Deputy Assistant Secretary Mark Knapper and to you listeners, for tuning in. If you're an educator interested in hosting a webinar discussion with your class on careers in the foreign service or the U.S.-Korea relationship, please reach out to KEI. Our Director of Academic Affairs, Kyle Ferrier, can be reached at kf at keia.org. We'll be back next week with more commentary analysis on the most important issues in the Korean Peninsula. Keep up the hand washing and see you then.